Welcome to the Production First Mindset, a podcast where we discuss the world of building code from the lab all the way to production. We explore the tactics, methodologies, and metrics used to drive real customer value by the engineering leaders actually doing it. I'm your host, Liran Chemovic, CTO and co-founder of Frugal. Today, we are going to be discussing the complexities of data integration. With us is Stefan Thorpe, Chief Engineering Officer at CHER. Thank you for joining us and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Stefan, tell me a little bit about yourself, who you are. So, obviously, I head up an engineering department at Cherry. I've worked in the technology space for, well, 24, 25 years now. I come from an ops background. I used to build networks, build servers, like everything from laying cables to actually I worked on the physical building of a data center back in the UK. That was a long time ago. I was also really lucky to get involved in AWS and actually do a POC with AWS back in 2008, 2009. And I knew instantly the cloud was exactly where I was going to go. That has put me at the forefront of DevOps for just over a decade and a bit, nearly a decade and a half. Uh, scaling systems is what I've done and what I've focused on. I've traveled the world doing it, and that's exactly what I love doing. Awesome. Now, you mentioned you've started with operations, going as back as, you know, data center operations, networking operations. And I have to wonder, when people think about, you know, the head of engineering the first image that comes to mind is usually some ex-software engineer, somebody who writes tons of code. And I kind of have to wonder, how do you see it? How does this different background story, so to speak, makes a difference or doesn't make a difference in how you see your role? It makes a difference in a number of ways. I think really partly my view of what DevOps here becomes important. Whilst I come from an ops background, I realize and always had an interest in some of that development background as well. And especially as I started to adopt those cloud environments, like the first thing I did for most companies circa 2009, 2010, was migrate them onto the cloud. Everyone was really excited about massive scale and everything else. And so I was moving these Ruby applications on, maybe PHP, and then they would come and be like, great, we've got this system that scales, but it's now not scaling. And what I quickly learned was it's because we weren't architecturing the actual software. Like the whole point of DevOps is it's dev and that operations. And so mm-hmm. from that point on, as soon as I started to realize that, I just re-geared my training and skilling. I then spent four or five years heavily in the development space. I still did ops, but I learned everything about design patterns true OO, how and when to apply functional, which ones work, which ones don't work, and really bring that. So I just spent that entire time. I still do that. It's interesting. I now code in more language than I care to speak. But every time I sit down and look at a system, I bring the software architecture and what I'm going to do in my code and then the application. And I can't help but view the entire system in this kind of Mm -hmm. 3D integrated model within my head. Mm-hmm. Makes perfect sense. So I had to work on the dev side of it, but yeah, it's made me a better engineer. It's actually one of the things I push 
all of my engineers to do. So whilst I have a team of some 30, 40 data engineers, many of those guys are more skilled in, say, Kubernetes and infrastructure than some DevOps guys I've met. No offense to the DevOps community, Mm -hmm. but it's all part of our continuous learning, our continuous improvement process. We'll probably talk about this more later, but we run a blameless post-mortem process. And mm-hmm. like the very root of that is getting down to those five whys, what's going on, what's happened in the system. Now, that system as a whole is the people, the actual production, development, operations. And then, so we really have to run through that entire stack. And through that process, our team learns about all of those technologies. So you've mentioned the blameless post-mortem. So let's dive into that kind of. How do you monitor your SaaS platform and where does the blameless post-mortem come into play? We monitor everything. And the mechanism we use predominantly to assess how well we're doing is SLOs, service level objectives. Okay, To put it in that simplest term for those that might not be aware, it's a ratio that we do something X amount of time over a certain percentage. And that gives us an error budget and a response time. Through those SLOs, we work out how well the system is doing. And as I said, the system includes people, not just the technical system. Mm -hmm. So are we able to deliver and set our client expectations? When I say we monitor everything, it's phenomenal how much data we produce from just the monitoring metrics. Like We literally have hundreds of metrics across hundreds of variations. We still miss stuff. And again, that (laughs) comes into the blameless postmortem process. Okay. If something happens, and as we go through that five wires, you're like, oh, well, we could have had a test here that might have alerted that. The first thing we go and do is then go and add that test into the system. So maybe we have anomaly checks. And again, you have to continuously improve monitoring and those benchmarks. And maybe the anomaly or the standard deviation was too wide or too narrow and it alerts too much or doesn't alert enough. And all of that plays in. So we're constantly tweaking and improving those. We're also constantly looking for additional systems to monitor in very different ways. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I think the post-mortem process and the fact that it's the system, always, always the system, it's never a single person or a single thing. Frankly, if a person has been able to do something, the system has been configured incorrectly. Mm-hmm. So the first thing we do is like in those scenarios, we sit everybody down. It's like, okay, we get it. I'm sure you get that kind of ice cold bath when somebody has done something or maybe they <laughs> felt like they were, they could have done something or stopped it. Or maybe I could have raised my hand up and said X, Y, and Z. But the point is the system should do it. And from there, we just look at how we can improve it, add in the fix, move on to the next thing and continue to move forwards. So I have to wonder, You've repeatedly mentioned metrics and SLOs. So I'm guessing that when it comes to the three pillars of observability, you are very metrics-driven compared to other types of observability. Can you share a bit more about that? What key metrics are you looking at? And especially, how do they differ between different parts of the system? For Cherry as a data integration platform, it's all about delivering, in fact, any startup, it's all about delivering for our client needs, okay? And in our case, our clients, everyone's interested in uptime because you want to make sure that you get access to the 
platform that you're using. Okay, but that that's a mm-hmm. simple one. Everyone should do that out the back. For us, it's around the data and getting the data to our clients in a consistent manner. Mm-hmm. And so we want to make sure that we deliver data on time. Okay, if the source has an update Monday five a.m. We might want to get it out to our clients by 8 a.m. So they've got it there for their working day moving forwards. We deal with all types of data, by the way. So we actually pull public data sources. We pull our data partner data sources. So we're working with our data partners because they're able to deliver quicker. And then we work with our clients' integration services. And that's how our clients are able to uh, form their insights quicker, make their decisions better and go through that entire process. Let's take a step back for a second and say a bit more about what are you doing as a company and what are you doing with all that data you seem to be moving around? So Cherry is the real estate's leading data integration and insights platform. What that means is we enable our customers to connect both their internal and external disparate data for insights and better decision making. Mm -hmm. The world knows that data has value, okay? But for it to have value, it needs to connect and join seamlessly. And so, I mean, a very simple way is that we build data warehouses for our clients. Um, What I was coming to is that can be public data. It can be data partner data, especially in the real estate world. There's a lot of people that focus on the right comparison for, I don't know, a single family home or the trends over a particular submarket and those kind of things. So there's companies that niche down on getting the right quality in a very particular question area. We don't. We want our clients to be able to bring all of that data together and then start to look at the entire picture as a whole. What that allows them to do is make better decisions, make better and quicker business decisions. And if we do that in a consistent way, it's much better. So we focus on reducing risk. We automate the entire process and we accelerate those times to business insights mm-hmm. and giving clients value to their data. So if we go back to the metrics you've mentioned, I understand your key metrics around the data. How quickly do you move to data? How accurate is the data? How well do you integrate it or process it exactly that's exactly what we're looking at so we look at end-to-end how long it takes us to process and the the data delivery windows but that in itself has contractual SLAs and then we have our own objectives to delivering that consistently we then have performance SLAs and I'll get onto that once we talk about how we deliver data to our clients Mm -hmm. and then the other thing we do is check for quality and anomalies and changes within the data. What you typically see with almost any data set is trend patterns, okay? Mm -hmm. Maybe the fill rate of a column increases by half a percent every time you do a weekly update, okay? If all of a sudden, so you've got this trend that goes up by half a percent each week. If all of a sudden it drops off by 10%, our alert system will come up and say, okay, something was different here. Not sure whether it was right or wrong, but it was different. And then we'll trigger an incident, we'll check what's going on, work out. It could be that the 
source was down. It could have been something as simple as the file that we downloaded was corrupt and we weren't able to process it. And so we'd come back and we restart that process. So that's all around our data delivering what our clients want. Then we obviously have our performance of our systems underlying in every system we touch. Is our ingest system working as expected? Are packages that build up all of those still functioning at the same way they're doing them? We then have machine learning models. Are they performing in the same way that they were previously doing? And again, what you do with metrics is you build up this <laughs> picture of what's going in and a live environment and frankly trigger on anything and everything to start off with. And then you just kind of work out which metrics are valuable and which ones aren't. Mm-hmm. I've set up monitors that I thought were going to be hugely important and then I've never heard from them ever again in the, <laughs> uh, an all time. So, <laughs> but that's part of the joy of going through the system and continually learning from what's needed and what's not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's all about trial and error. Something can seem completely reasonable and make a jump as an alert every time after time after time or something else that might seem uh, obvious can never ever make an appearance exactly i mean honestly those alerts that go off all the time are probably more dangerous than the ones that don't (laughs) exactly now so i'm wondering you've mentioned a lot about the data you're ingesting kind of what data is it what data sources do you integrate and what are the challenges of working with them it's any real estate data that our clients need as tangential as that needs to be. We've connected everything from the court systems so that people can understand when an asset is in a distressed state and there's something going on within the court systems and any legals. We've connected floodplain data so that people can understand the risks and maybe an insurer is looking at it and saying, okay, is this building within a high risk area? It's literally any data. The challenges that come with that are varying and massive. Okay. (laughs) Probably one of my favorites. We had to deal with an FTP server that was nearly 25 years old. (laughs) That sounds like a recipe for great success. Oh, honestly, it was so much fun. It hadn't been updated. So obviously nowadays it's running these obscure security protocols, which took some time to go and work out and, try and get at all of that through all of our layers of security and back out. And that, that was fun within itself. And then <laughs> the files that had been uploaded have been manually edited and added since 95 by Windows. So the encoding <laughs> system, whilst this was templated, the encoding system for this has been every variation of Microsoft simple coded fonts since Windows 95. And Microsoft have had some really interesting operating systems during that period. So we would process it, we'd get 25% through and it'd be like, okay, we found an error. Like, okay, first time around, we were like, okay, what's going on here? And we're like, oh, it's an encoding thing. Okay. So we then kind of built this really long list of like, does it match this encoding? Does it match this encoding? Those kind of things. We then have to deal with the other end of it. High speed data that's coming through on a much more quicker scale. One of my favorite analogies around this, there's a video that's going around the internet of a philosopher talking about how heavy is it to hold a glass. Mm -hmm. And what he goes on to say is like, the glass isn't heavy, okay? But you stand there and hold the glass for 30 minutes, it gets heavier. You stand there for two hours, your arm is going to be aching and throbbing, and now that glass is really heavy. 
when you're managing hundreds of pipelines, you've got hundreds of those glasses that you're holding and having to keep in a working state, constantly trying to deliver. And like you say we do that coming back through our metrics and just making sure that they're running smoothly. Mm-hmm. Do that consistently over weeks, months, years. As I said, some of our ingests are 15 minutes, pretty high speed. And then some of them, it goes off once a year. So you don't lock at it for a year and then it, it fires up and it comes out. And then <laughs> if there's a potential issue, you're like, okay, we worked on this a year ago. Like, what were we doing? So <laughs> yeah, uh, there's a whole heap of them, but it's a lot of fun, honestly. So how do you go about building hundreds of different data pipelines? Do you have a platform for that? Do you automate some of the process? What does it look like? Everything in our production system is automated, even our manual processes. And I'll come to that in a minute. As I said earlier, when I think about systems, I'm really good at picturing the high level. Like Systems architecture is kind of the space I've lived in. And for me, layering is the most important thing. Okay. And so our system is layered. Each area has a very particular set of responsibilities, and it must just deliver the same thing at its seam or it's joined to the next layer. And this was really a concept I took from the OSI model, the seven-layer networking model that Mm -hmm. you learn when you go and do Cisco, so you go and do operations. And that seven-layer model has stood the test of time. (laughs) That's older than most people have been working in this industry. And it works because as long as the seam is the same, what you do in that layer doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Now, what that gives you the ability to do is version one section. So we've gone through four, five, maybe six versions of our ingest to work out the most efficient process. And as long as it delivers into the warehouse in the same format, we can do what we like. Same at our data warehouse. We've gone through, we did things in SQL on Postgres, and then we did things in SQL on BigQuery, and now we're doing things in DBT. And even just the standard we're using within DBT is layered. So we iterate that. Mm -hmm. So again, we layer everything. That gives us huge amounts of flexibility. That gives us our automation across the entire stack. Coming back to what I said about the manual, even our manual stuff, sometimes we have to do some data crunching that's very unique for a very particular use case that we know we're not going to repeat. doesn't make sense to build a system that's fully automated to do that. That's gold plating. It doesn't fall into that 80-20 rule. So what we simply did was we built a system that allows us to drop a file into a particular safe bucket with the right approvals, and then that system gets loaded into our database and into our data warehouse and then shit. It means it goes through the automation checks that most things go through. Obviously, it doesn't have the same qualities, but it goes through some safety metrics to make sure it gets into production. So that way, our entire production is hands-off. We don't have anybody doing anything. Even our code deployment is all through CI, all through that entire process. This sounds like some pretty impressive stuff and a pretty complex and robust platform for ingesting the data, integrating it, and making it available for your customers. So I have to wonder, what are the future developments you have in mind? Scale. We've still got hundreds of thousands of data sources to add. Our schema is already massive. Mm -hmm. We recently spoke to an API gateway company, a well-known one. I won't name them because they're they're a great company. 
But the first thing they said when they looked at our schema was, your scheme is bigger than any schema we've ever seen. Right, <laughs> literally. But size doesn't matter. <laughs> so it's, it doesn't matter until it breaks everything. <laughs> but we've got more. Like There's so much more data in the real estate industry out there. It's growing at an exponential rate. There's so many different ways to look at it. So we've got more to that. We've got a, a long list of data partners that we're working with and we're adding them into the system on a uh, on a very quick cadence. So we're doing more of that. As we add each of those data sources in, it builds out our graph and our machine learning and data scientists, uh, data science teams just continue to push the boundaries on what we can do and just what they can find out. Like in a theoretical world, if you can see all the data, you're going to get the answers right. And so we're just adding into that and we discover new spaces and new scopes of work that we can go into. So we'll continue to push the boundaries on that. For myself, as I said, I'm a DevOps engineer. So personally, one of the things that I'm really interested and in looking forward to is what we're currently doing with Kubernetes and custom resource definitions. Like mm-hmm. Kubernetes is so extensible. In theory, you could build a domain object model or an APR mm-hmm. that allows us to deploy a pipeline with like 10 lines of configuration. Mm-hmm. Tell us what the source is, tell us whether they should be really simple. And that's where we're driving right now. So we're using the extensibility of Kubernetes to drive some of that. I've always found that deeply interesting. Yeah, we don't use Terraform. I know it's the de facto within the industry. Mm-hmm. We did use Terraform, but everything is within Kubernetes manifest. Uh, again, part of the reason I said earlier, my team understand Kubernetes is because they only really need a couple of languages. How does a Kubernetes manifest work? What does it do? And can I build my own? The answer is yes. If you learn that and you learn DBT, you can do a hell of a lot within our system. Mm -hmm. So that gives us growth and area and again, just continued scalability. Very inspiring. Thank you. I have just one more question to you before we wrap this up. It's a question I ask all of my guests. So what's the single bug that you remember the most from your career, from all of those, you know, everything from data centers to the cloud and the Kubernetes? I knew this question was coming and I couldn't think of a single bug, but the one thing that just kept playing on my mind, I'm dyslexic, pretty heavily so. It's interesting, it doesn't come up as much in coding, but the one consistent thing that has always come up in coding for me is the missing of like a single letter. Uh, again, with dyslexia, you read something and you, the way it forms, the letters are either there or not there. And I was joking with one of our employees. I had to type in a Wi-Fi password, something really <laughs> simple. The password was quick owl, okay? And rather than put a U in, I put KW. And I went, I'm not joking, I had 15, 20 minutes of like, me, me shouting at my wife, like, I know this is the password. Why is it not working? And she walks <laughs> over, I'm like, you have a double W rather than a U. And I'm like, oh, okay. That has happened in coding for me so often. I've banged my head, looked at something, I've put it down. You know, you calm down, come back 24 hours, look at it, and you go, yep, I was missing a letter. I had too many letters in that, uh, that word. And something as simple as that is probably the biggest one. Dyslexia can be challenging at times. It's interesting. I think it's what forms my systems thinking that 
So whilst it's not great for writing and my, my <laughs> Slack communication is interesting, I think it's part of how I visualize everything uh, and go through that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I recently saw that LinkedIn and Richard Branson are now doing a dyslexic mindset as a tag. You know, those things that you say, I'm good at this, I'm good at that. They've started doing one within there. So, yeah. Any final thoughts for our listeners? I mean, for me, uh, Jerry's always growing. We're a culture first company meaning that we literally hire on culture less on experience. So someone's got one year experience or 15 years of experience, come and say hi, sit down with us. We're growing rapidly. We're doing some very exciting stuff in lots of locations across all of the cloud providers. Yeah, uh, some great opportunities. And if not, I'm always just happy to network with people. So, Stefan, how should people reach out to you to network or to learn more about Cherry? They can go to careers at cherry.com. That's the first place if they want to apply. If you just want to reach out to me, my LinkedIn is just Stefan Thorpe and you'll find me under Cherry. Yeah, they're probably the two best locations. Awesome. Thank you very much for joining us. Again, thank you for having me. This is a lot of fun. So that's a wrap on another episode of the Production First Mindset. Please remember to like, subscribe, and share this podcast. Let us know what you think of the show and reach out to me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Production First. Thanks again for joining us.